Hi everybody and welcome to Talk Gnosis. This episode is Dr. M. David Litva of uh, Virginia Tech. He's joining us for the second time on Talk Gnosis to talk about divinization, deification, theosis, and all of those different um, words that maybe they mean the same thing, maybe they're a little bit different, um, how they relate to uh, both uh, canonical and Gnostic scriptural examples, and what the uh, processes are that are available to us to become our own uh, gods here on earth as per the Gnostic mythos. So stick around, you're going to enjoy this show at Talk Gnosis with Dr. David Litva, Deification. Dr. Litva, Deification divinization and theosis. How do you define these three terms and how do they differ from each other? Well, it's a good question. Uh, many people use them synonymously and I think that's perfectly fine. Some people prefer to use theosis to designate specifically Christian forms of deification, um, but that's not universal. I personally use the term deification as the broadest possible term um, and one that I think uh, works best for historians. And, uh, and what would that, uh, what does that word mean? So <laughs> in its most simplest form, uh, deification means becoming a god mm -hmm. uh, from deus, the Latin word for god, and facio meaning to make. Um, so there already is in deification the sense of making a god. Um, that's essentially what theosis means. It's the process of, of godding or en-godding. Sometimes that's used in English, uh, but more or less becoming a god. Some people use divinization as a lesser form of deification. So becoming divine would mean something less than becoming god but that's not necessarily uh, universal. People use that as synonymous as well. Okay. Now this is a, a topic that you've written quite a bit about, but I understand that you have a, a new book you know, on this subject. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your new book and your impetus for writing it? Sure. The new book uh, that just came out from Oxford this October uh, is called uh, Desiring Divinity. Self-deification in Jewish and Christian traditions, or Jewish and Ju Jewish and Christian mythmaking, and I wrote this book because I always found it fascinating that both in the Hebrew Bible and in Christian texts you had figures who claimed divinity for themselves, and it's often the case that people write these figures off as uh, megalomaniacal and evil or blasphemous. Whereas that's not always the case. Uh, some of these people who claim divinity, including Jesus himself, um, are not depicted as arrogant or prideful. Uh, they are depicted as absolutely correct. Although persecuted on earth, they are justified and eventually rise to the heavens. And the question is, why is that? And why do we have this contrast of some people making divine claims who end up roasting um, in hell or in an afterlife punishment and being persecuted as blasphemers. Uh, why do we have that, this self-deifying rebel, contrasted with this self-deifying hero? 
And in the end, who's right? Should we deify ourselves? Is that inherently bad? Or is that just part of the human condition? That we're striving for something greater than ourselves? We're striving to be something to be greater than ourselves? Is that so bad? That's right. what the book looks at. <laughs> oh, that, that's awesome. And it, it covers a fair amount of ground, right? You start back in, in the ancient world and you go right up until the modern day. Is that correct? Well, that book uh, is actually a, a previous book of mine, uh, yeah, called Becoming Divine. In in Desiring Divinity, I just treat ancient world. Okay. Um, you already touched on the Hebrew Bible. Uh, when I do the questions, uh, this is your second time on the show, uh, I write some infamously leading questions. <laughs> so this is one of them. Okay. So uh, the, these, these ideas about divinization, self-divinization in the Judaisms that we find in the Bible and existing up until the Second Temple. I'm saying Judaisms with an S, or I don't even like the term Judaism until after the Second Temple, but you know what I mean. Um, uh, these, uh, the Semitic religion. Uh, how can you have divinization? Because isn't there just one God in monotheism? So the, if, if people are self-deifying, or if there's theosis, or if there's divinization, isn't that creating more gods? Are these ideas foreign to, uh, to Judaism? Did they enter through the Hellenistic Greek culture that was in the Mediterranean? Well, it's a great question, and it's important to ask because Jews even today uh, pride themselves, or have a certain pride, for introducing uh, monotheism, or at least supporting monotheism, which became our major theological tradition in the Western world. And monotheism is obviously important, but we have to be clear about what it is. And monotheism, as I understand it, means the centrality or primacy of power held by one particular deity. And in the Jewish case, that would be the deity called Yahweh. And there's no question that he has supreme power and that he is the supreme lord of the universe. But that does not at all mean that he would exclude other deities in that universe. And we see time and time again in ancient Jewish texts where various figures are called gods, including beings that are called angels or malachim. Um, the ghost of Samuel is called an Elohim, which is the Hebrew word for god or gods. And we have figures like Enoch in the book of First Enoch who takes a trip to heaven and ends up realizing that he is the son of man or the son of the human who is depicted as a prime mediator figure, God's right-hand man, so to speak, the universe. And this figure clearly is divine because by virtue of receiving worship. And so, again, time and time again, we see in Jewish texts, uh, right up in the Hebrew Bible, right up to the Dead Sea Scrolls, and into other pseudepigrapha, that there are various gods mentioned. And Yahweh does not seem to have a problem with that. And so we need to be clear that what we mean by deification in a Jewish sense indicates that there can indeed be many gods as long as we're clear that one God has all the power, the cent or the central, is still central in terms of having supreme power over these other deities. But I think that in many cases, not in all, 
Yahweh does welcome other gods into the divine family, sometimes called the divine council. So when does this happen that there, um, you know, the God, the, there's one primary God and then there are other kind of little gods. And when does it become kind of blasphemous to, to talk about other gods in that sense? Well, there's a famous heresy mentioned in rabbinic texts called the Two Powers Heresy. And the rabbis who were active in the second and third century CE uh, were reacting against uh, various sects that indicated that God did have a vizier, that is a prime minister figure who was operative in the creation. And for Christians, of course, this was Jesus, but for other groups, this would have been various other figures. You can imagine Enoch or the Son of Man or etc. wisdom uh, at creation. What seems to be happening is it's the rabbinic uh, interpreters who are hammering out an exclusive monotheism, often in response to the Christian or Trinitarian version of monotheism. But I would have to say that even for the rabbis in the ancient world, they don't think of exclusive monotheism in quite the same way that, that we do. Um, I would say throughout antiquity, there was always a sense that God did share power. And by virtue of sharing power uh, and function and name, other people could be divine, even if there was a hesitancy to call these figures directly gods by the time of the by the rabbinic period uh that does lead into my next leading question there there's a pretty common idea i i think um in sort of the secular west that uh jesus is uh this uh this cool guy right the historical jesus and he travels around uh teaching you know peace and love and he's crucified and then much 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 later in the tradition. Uh, there's all these myths that, that grow up about him being divine. Um, is, is that view it accurate in, in, your, uh, uh, in, your, um, in your view? Is, is this, uh, is, are these ideas about Jesus being a divine figure much, much later developments? And is this, again, something that's being brought in from so-called Hellenism or so-called Greek and pagan influence from around the Mediterranean? Well, again, it's another great question, one of those really big questions that are very difficult to answer. But one thing that... I was going to say, Dr. Lewy, every question on the sheet tonight is could basically be a show in itself. But sorry to interrupt. Please go on. Well, one thing that we need to be clear on is that Hellenism never came in. And what I mean by that is by the first century, that is the period in which Jesus is said to live, that what we call Hellenism had already been dominant in that culture for 300 years, that Alexander the Great had gone in a rampage and had conquered all those areas, including everything we call Palestine, 300 years before Jesus was born. So there's no question about Hellenism coming in. It was already there. It was simply the culture that Jews had been in for centuries. So if we're, if we're going to talk about outside influence, that metaphor makes no sense historically because the Jews had already more or less acculturated and had formed a hybrid culture 
with everybody else in the Mediterranean world. So it just, Hellenism, if that's what we want to call it, was just there. And we need to be prepared, I think, to talk about the mythologization of Jesus. But I think that those who think that the mythologization of Jesus occurred late are, um, or exclusively occurred late, are simply mistaken. We need to take account of the fact that a lot of myths about people becoming divine uh, had already been in place for centuries. And this idea that uh, there was some kind of conspiracy and at the Council of Nicaea to make a poor Jewish peasant into the second person of the Trinity based on, you know, Plato is, is ridiculous. Uh, the, mytholo the mythology is already in place for Jesus to become a divine figure, and it's probably true to a certain degree that Jesus himself may have thought that he was a divine figure because he applied that mythology to himself. And it certainly with after the experiences, visionary experiences of a resurrected Jesus, almost the early Christians would almost be forced to, in my, my opinion, think of this figure as divine. And within 20 years, I think, of these early resurrection visions, you have, I think, a fully divine Jesus as testified in the letters of Paul. This is not... The divinization of Jesus or the deification of Jesus is not a not a late movement, or at least it's not exclusively late. It's extremely occurs extremely rapidly, for for two reasons: because the mythology of divine humanity is already in place. They are, Jews already had Enoch and already had other the, the king being thought of as the son of God, and second, it's is the result of powerful Christian experiences of Jesus as a resurrected heavenly figure. And if he's a resurrected heavenly figure, living immortal and exercising power of the cosmos, that figure is a god. So if we want to call that mythologization, that's fine, but that happened rapidly. I've been having a lot of conversations lately about the uh, ecumenical councils. Uh, I don't know what it is in the air, but um, the the idea that um, the arguing about the divinity of Jesus was kind of the entirety of early Christianity and you know, groups having differing opinions on how divine was Jesus exactly? And, you know, uh, was he divine when he was born? And, you know, all of this stuff. And how many angels can dance on the head of a pin? Um, mm -hmm. the, uh, the way that I've kind of been describing it, and I actually don't know how accurate this is, but is, uh, you know, is it, different groups fighting with each other to promote their particular idea and you know one idea or another winning out in a kind of popularity contest and some people get punched in the face or whatever but uh, uh, it, it's um, it seems to me that the divinity of Jesus uh, being one of these points of argument, and not exactly whether Jesus was divine, but at what point he was divine, or how divine was he, and where does he fall in the hierarchy? Um, what do you think uh, kind of led to the um, Trinitarian concepts of Jesus as a um, co-eternal uh, part of 
the one true divinity. Um, and, and can you answer in 140 characters or less? <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to address something that you, you said, which I think is very accurate. The way I describe it is early Christianity is not a horse race. That is, it's often conceived that there are these early Christian groups competing and with these competing Christologies, and some people won and some people lost. And I think that's a terrible way to view things, terribly naive and inaccurate. There are essentially are no winners and losers. That when you have traditions, they are used, reused, adapted, and recycled. And the ideas that seem to fade away are often those very ideas that are transformed into something new. And today's heresy often becomes tomorrow's orthodoxy if you can tweak it, hmm. and vice versa. So nobody really wins or loses. I mean, I, I admit that some people do get burned and destroyed, but the ideas are always in the process of rapid transformation and transmogrification, and people are going to adapt whatever it takes. And I think that this is really what happens uh, as we get into the fourth century, and I'm actually not an expert in the fourth century. I'm an expert in the first and second. Mm -hmm. But what I can say about these church councils is this is a way to finally come to grips with Christianity and the heritage of ancient philosophy. And what we call the Trinity um, is simply an attempt to make early Christian views of deity philosophically acceptable. And I think that a lot of people, you know, this is, this is rationalism. Mm. Um, this is the attempt to make the faith look as rational as possible, even though at the end they say that, you know, it, it's a mystery and <laughs> that's fine. We don't really know what the Trinity is. My point, I, I think, is that these early Christians are, most early Christians, I would argue, agree that Jesus is divine in, in some sense. Um, the question is, you've got, you've got a pushback later in the fourth century to combine a fully human and fully divine figure, and that causes some philosophical and logical problems, mm -hmm. which were never at issue in the first and second century. But in order to make the faith uh, philosophically and rationally responsible to an elite, uh, to a new elite, a new Christian elite, that there was an attempt to hammer out a lot of the details. And unfortunately, as these creedal formations got more and more specific, more and more people got excluded, and um, it's just reality. The more precise you are, the less people <laughs> you can please. Um, so I, I don't have any magic answers of <laughs> how we get from A to B, but that is what I can say. Very cool. 
we backtrack a little bit? Uh, um, just in passing, uh, we talked. Uh, you mentioned um, about how sort of the ground is already laid for understanding Jesus as a divine figure, and you mentioned the uh, the king, the the king of Israel. Um, and uh, I understand. So the king of Israel was understood while he was alive to be a divine figure. And I also want to combine that with another question. Wasn't the Roman emperor somehow understood to be a god, even when he was alive? But, you know, these are both obviously men that people serve and can see and go to the royal court and, and touch. Like, how, how, could, how did people understand these rulers as simultaneously being gods? And did, did this affect any religious approaches? Did it have an impact in how people thought about divinity in the uh, ancient Mediterranean world? Absolutely. I like to think of ancient religion as simply politics, but it's the politics of heaven. Gods and kings are the exact analogs of each other, and so on heaven, or so in heaven, so on earth. So if you've got divine kings on earth, that really makes sense to an ancient person because God actually is a king. And I don't think the ancients thought of that as a metaphor. I just think they thought of that as the absolute truth. God is a king. It's logical that kings on earth are gods. This is a phenomenon, although a lot of people in Jewish studies would resist this, the idea that ancient Jews had a ruler cult. I think it's absolutely true that the king did receive a kind of veneration. Uh, he is actually called God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, again using Elohim in the Psalms and being called the Son of God in Psalm 2, uh, or actually in a kind of ritual ceremony, apparently, where the king becomes the Son of God. I don't think the Son of God is just a cute metaphor. I think he really does become the Son of Yahweh, and therefore becomes worthy of the kind of worship and veneration that someone participating in Yahweh's power would receive. And although... Uh, that may be offensive to some. I just think that's what the, the historical data points to. Now, it is true that you have ruler cult really ramping up after Alexander the Great, uh, and it's really he who invents the Greek concept of divine kingship, and it's absolutely clear that he was in his lifetime considered son of Zeus and considered a divine being and possibly considered himself to be a divine being and was worshipped as such, and later rulers, his successors, experienced the same phenomena. They were living gods who had hymns and sacrifices in their honor. And when the Romans came along, it's absolutely true that they also received sacrifices and praise and worship that was due to a deity. It's true that there was some attempt to distinguish the kinds of sacrifices and praise that they received. For instance, in the Jewish temple, they would offer a sacrifice on behalf of Caesar Augustus rather than to him. And sometimes this would be repeated in other cult sites. But it's also true that not far from Jerusalem, in Caesarea Maritima, you had a temple of Caesar Augustus built by no less than Herod the Great, in which Caesar Augustus is depicted as the image of Zeus and has a cult statue that is 40 feet high and where Jews and non-Jews come to worship and where the remains exist today. So it's absolutely clear that the Jews were familiar with ruler cult and that the Roman emperors were worshipped in their lifetime. Did they actually see these rulers? 
not really. Um, then, but their image was ubiquitous. And if you go to any kind of museum today, especially in Italy, you will see thousands of images of the emperor depicted as a living God, because that is what he was. Did this influence how Christians thought of Jesus, the king of the universe? Absolutely. There's no question if you are the king of the cosmos that you are a divine figure. And the idea of a divine human being, although radical to us today, is absolutely standard and common in the ancient world. This is very hard for people to get their minds around, but it's, it's absolutely everywhere in the culture. Deification is just the standard for those who rise to a certain level of authority and power. It's not just those who have, and for the philosophers, who rise to a level of, of moral perfection. That actually um, is pretty illustrative of um, how a, a figure in the, uh, in the Middle East at this time calling himself, or his followers calling him, the son of God, uh, could actually be seen as a threat to the ruling elite. Um, you know, if... if uh, if the king is supposedly also a son of God. I mean, I, I think that that is very true. And a lot of people have wanted to say that certain texts in the Gospels and in the epistles of Paul are anti-imperial because they portray Jesus as cosmic Lord. But a point that I often like to mention is that may be anti-imperial, but it's also, in a sense, pro-imperial because it, it's merely a change mm. in the king. The, the Christians are using the same tropes, the same basic ideas for divinizing not the emperor, but this particular Jewish peasant from a no-name town in Nazareth. That's what's radical. But they're, they are adapting all the time elements from their the ruler cult from their own political context and applying it to Jesus. I don't see that as particularly anti-imperial. I see that as these gospels are, these gospel writers are using the imperial politics to their own advantage mm -hmm. and giving us a Jesus who is the true cosmocrator, the true pantocrator, the true one who is the emperor of the cosmos. They don't get there without Roman politics. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. hmm. Can we stay on the, the anti-imperial theme just for a second to, to jump ahead to our, our precious uh, Gnostics or our precious Sethians? Uh, like you mentioned, it's just obvious to, to people at the time that, uh, that, that God is a king, God is an emperor, right? Because they look around them, they see the God and the emperor who is the God on Earth. As it is on Earth, as you said, it must be above. So. Are, are the Archons and Yalda Bayoff, is that an anti-imperial reaction to what's going on on Earth? Because I can see the thought process where you're dealing with a very annoying ruler, a bureaucrat, an unfair ruler. So you, obviously, if you're already in this worldview, you're like, well, that's what it must be like in heaven. Well, <laughs> uh, I, I think you're on to something. Uh, I do think that there is political criticism in the Gnostic writings, but I... I also think that they take seriously the idea that our world really is controlled by evil superpowers 
whom they do call archons or rulers. And so in a sense, the emperor and his cronies and the whole Roman bureaucracy and administration is essentially a puppet show. But the people really running the show are these demonic agents who are at the center and behind the scenes, sort of like the man behind the curtain and the Wizard of Oz, that they're the really ones who they are criticizing. And so the, the object of the criticism, yes, indirectly is the Roman government and the bureaucracy and the terrible exploitation, economic and socially, but they really do think that those people are just an epiphenomenon of the actual evil demonic infrastructure running this entire cosmos. So, okay, it's anti-imperial, but it, that's only secondary. Yeah, and echoes of that all the way up to the 70s where you have Philip K. Dick talking about the empire never ended. And, uh, right. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, and I think that's absolutely true. I think that the, the you know, the Sethians specifically were, were talking about a world in which these um, archons and spirits and, and whatever they were calling them um, were absolutely real. And they absolutely had, um, had their fingers in the pies of all of the, um, you know, the, the political machinations that were going on at the time. And, um were actually talking about when they talked about the these archons were actually talking about the uh, spiritual powers behind the scenes of the actual powers who um, were uh, were kind of puppets right I mean it goes back to that that phrase in Paul in first Corinthians where he says that the the archons crucified the Lord of glory because they didn't know who he, who he was. And the interpretive question is, who are the archons? Right. Is he actually talking about the human rulers, the, the, the Romans nailing Jesus to the cross? Or is he talking about these demonic agents who are operative in the sky and behind the scenes? And I think it's really both and. But I think even for Paul, and if you want to Paul call Paul a Gnostic, you know. And we do. That, that's fine. <laughs> but I, I think he's really, he's on infrastructure. And I think he really views these Romans as essentially puppets. And to speak against Rome and to be a political rebel, that makes no sense. Because you're only fighting the epiphenomena. You're only fighting that superficial veneer. Mm -hmm. What Paul and the Gnostics are worried about is the man behind the curtain. That's the one you need to attack. That's the one you need to get by. That's the only way out of this universe. Echoes to our current uh, election cycle here in the United yeah. States. <laughs> the, the, the conspiracy theorists are going to definitely chime in in the comments section. Yes, um, please do. I love yeah, those. Those do. are fantastic. <laughs> those are the best. Uh, Dr. Litba, you actually brought us up to my next two leading questions. Uh, we're going to touch on Paul on one of them and then get right into him in the next. But uh, so, so I've heard this view that... Um, so basically a more traditional Christian view, that the entire Christian Bible, what's sometimes called the New Testament, 
presents Jesus as a, as the son of God, uh, fully God, fully human. Um, and I've also heard from scholars and people on the internet, maybe not from scholars, but I've also <laughs> heard that uh, some books of the New Testament don't show Jesus as divine at all, like, uh, say, Mark. Uh, and he's only divine in John and the Pauline letters. So those two views, are either of those correct well, uh, again, it's a it's a good, complex, nice leading question. <laughs> um, I one thing that I will say is this formulation of fully divine, fully human is a fourth century formulation, and we need just to throw that out. Uh, in the first century, um, I'm not sure that that's just it's just not an issue. Um, my own take on it is this, and it's only my take, that I think, let's use the example of the Gospel of Mark. So he looks like a normal human dude, and he goes around performing miracles and gets his, uh, gets crucified in the end, and then by report rises from the dead. And in his trial, he says what he has been avoiding, avoided saying throughout his entire ministry, that he actually is the Messiah. And he adds to that this prophecy from Daniel that he actually is the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and sitting at the right hand of the power. Now, is this a divine figure? Um, I think Mark leaves it a little bit ambiguous, but there are signs that he definitely is divine, and I would point to two signs that in the transfiguration scene, where all of a sudden this guy has beams of light bursting out of his clothes, and he starts talking with men who ought to be dead, and has this it, you have this overwhelming experience that can only be described as an epiphany in which only gods really do that sort of thing. And then his final claim at the trial that he is the son of man or the son of the human who will sit at the right hand of the power, I think tipped the balance for me and I would say that this is a hidden god figure that we know occurs all over Greek and Roman mythology where the gods come for a period of time and they don't reveal their true nature hmm. until usually the end and they often they give a sign. They come to impregnate some <laughs> random peasant woman, right? Well, uh, <laughs> not always. Uh, if you're a reader of Homer, you're familiar with the gods intervening for any number of reasons and they come in human form. They all come in human form. They never come in some divine or supernatural form. They're all hidden deities. And they deliberately hide themselves, and they sojourn on Earth, usually for a fairly short time. I think you know, what, actually... With the Bakai, right? He, uh, he's a normal human, and then he just, all of a sudden, he reveals himself at the end, in, after the city tears himself apart. Is that, Who, that was, being an example? What was oh. your example? Oh, sorry, uh, the, the, the Bacchae, the Bacchae. Uh, oh, okay. And Euripides? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Euripides. Yeah, I, I think that's a good example where you have Dionysus you, coming, obviously in disguised form, and he remains disguised for a long period of time throughout the entire play. 
And it's only in the end that, yes, he reveals his true form. And I think that this is basically the structure of the Gospel of Mark, that Jesus is deliberately hiding not only his messiahship, but also his divinity, and that it only becomes clear that he's a divine being when essentially you can't kill him. And even when you do kill him, he rises from the dead. But that's the ultimate proof of divinity. And we saw a sign of this in the transfiguration, that he's a divine being and his divine form can burst out of his human form when he wants. And his claim to be essentially God's chief vizier, the cosmocrator who's going to rip through the skies at the end of time, that really can only describe a divine being in the ancient world. So I have to put my money on all the Gospels supporting a kind of divine Jesus. That doesn't at all mean that he's human, fully human, or human at all. But he certainly looks that way. And Matthew born human. But as you know also from Greek mythology, you can have Heracles born from a human mother and still be a god. And you can have Romulus born from a human mother and be divinized in the end. This isn't a problem to be born. Uh, you can still become a god from your humanity. That's not a problem. Or in the case of the Johannine model, you can come as a pre-existent deity. Either way, I think we're dealing with the divine figure in almost every book of the New Testament. Some books, frankly, don't talk a lot about Jesus, so we don't know. Sorry to interrupt, but we need your help. Talk Gnosis and all of the shows on the Gnostic Wisdom Network are free and will always be free, but it does cost us a lot of time and money to actually make these shows. So what I'd like to ask is that if you have enjoyed our programming, if you've found something useful uh, about it, if you've been educated, please consider becoming a patron over on our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash Gnostic. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash Gnostic. We've got a whole bunch of new shows that we'd like to start making, but we can't do it until we can start to support ourselves a little bit more financially. And um, we really hope that you will assist us in our goals. Uh, we've got a great show coming up about sex and spirituality with uh, Reverend Mr. Jonathan Stewart from Talknosis and his wife, Sarah Beale. Uh, we've got The Lost Word coming back, Esoteric Freemasonry and Fraternal Orders and initiate, Initiatory Orders and all that kind of thing. We've got Temples and Tentacles uh, with some weird fiction authors, kind of Lovecraftian spirituality stuff that I think you're really going to like. Plus some really interesting kind of fictional and um, uh, kind of entertainment-based things that we want to do that also have kind of an esoteric agnostic educational component. So please, uh, we need your help to make all of this possible. We have big dreams, but we don't have a lot of resources to make those dreams a reality. So please do visit patreon.com slash Gnostic if you haven't already and uh, pledge. You just give a small amount of money uh, for every educational media thing that we put out. And then at the end of the month, your, your card gets charged. You can set an upper limit so that you're, ne you're never surprised by uh, too many things getting charged on your card per month. It's really very easy and very painless, and it makes a huge difference to the Gnostic educational ministry of the Gnostic Wisdom Network, the Apostolic Joe and I Church, and all of us here who work so hard to bring you this, um, what we think anyway, is pretty great content. So if you agree, that's patreon.com slash Gnostic. 
Sorry again for the interruption and back to the show. So, Dr. Litva, uh, we've been talking about these, these special divine figures, you know, kings, rulers, uh, Jesus. Uh, we haven't really talked about ordinary Joes becoming divine. Uh, is, is there ideas, like even in the Bible or in, say, a leading question, uh, the letters of Paul about how, how normal people can become divine or, or become uh, experiences theosis? Well, it depends on what you mean by divine. Usually a god is going to be defined by two basic properties. A god is going to be an immortal being with superhuman power. And if you can combine both of those, typically in the ancient world, you can be categorized as a deity. So in the Garden of Eden story, Adam gets only one of those characteristics. He gets a power of knowing good and evil. But in order to in order to prevent his full deification, Yahweh removes him from the tree of life, which will prevent him gaining immortality. I think what Paul does is he gives believers both gifts, but he gives it to them as so often as chiefly an afterlife scenario. He believes that the believer in Jesus is undergoing a present transformation. And it's a transformation enabled by spirit, which exists within us and is transforming us from within. And we are gaining a kind of power through that spirit. But the second element, immortality, is only going to be an end time or eschatological gift. And we are going to eventually have our bodies more or less cannibalized, so to speak, by the spirit who is going to transform our outer flesh into a spirit reality and we are going to then not exist under the conditions of entropy or decay and this will occur either at the so-called parousia or second coming of Jesus or um, well it will definitely occur then for both the dead and the living um, so it's something that we have to wait for but in spirit form, once we attain spirit form, I don't think there's any doubt that we would qualify as deities who have both superhuman power and immortality. This is one of the things that Nietzsche complained about Christianity. He said, you know, that immortality used to be something grand, but now every Peter and Paul can get it, and you have diluted the true heroic Greek mentality and given it to the masses and that is why your religion is disgusting but of course from the Christian point of view that is why the religion is grand that we have now have a democracy of gods within a larger theocracy um, and, and, and 
do, do you think this is this would be Paul's view? It just uh just when we put it in that kind of terminology, it sounds almost shocking to modern many modern ears, right? If I went into I, I believe many churches, and I'm not dumping on any church, but many church and and said, you know, Paul said we're all going to become gods. It'll be a democracy of gods. I think there's kind of a monocle falling out. <laughs> uh, but but do you believe that would be his his perspective? That's how he would view it. Well, you know, Paul is going to speak in his own distinctive ways, and I, I think we need to be clear, and I hope that I'm clear as a scholar, that I'm coming at it from an outsider, sometimes called an edict perspective, that I don't pretend to be representing exactly Paul's language or just redescribing Paul's language. That would be an entirely boring task. I am creating new categories which are, I think are faithful to Paul's thought and which I think expresses true meaning. But I don't say, I never have said that Paul speaks in exactly this kind of language. But I think in terms of the realm of antiquity, deification is what I call a native category. That is a category with which people were familiar with. And if someone comes in and preaches a message of immortality, the reception of a spirit body and superhuman power, then he is preaching the gospel of deification, even if those words have not been invented. Mm. Uh, 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 oh, go ahead, Father. Well, I was just uh, I was thinking that there was uh, a couple of uh, digressions that could happen at this point, but maybe should be <laughs> saved for other shows. But I'll say them out loud anyway. Um, the uh, we had. Uh, um, um, uh, Richard Hodges on the show a couple of weeks back, and uh, to talk about Gurdjieff. And one of the um, one of the things we talked about is the immortality of the soul, and whether or not that is an innate quality of every person, or if that's something that can be that or is or it has the potential to be, I should say, developed over time. Um, and, and whether or not that deification is something that is uh, something that happens to all people or all believers or just those people who worked really hard at it. Um, kind of a, a, a topic maybe for another time. And, um, and the other one has gone from my brain, so maybe it'll come back <laughs> later. You know how that happens. <laughs> uh, uh, Father, actually, I'll let you take the next question on the sheet because I don't know how to say that word. Theonomy? Is that the one? The Yep. <laughs> so what's theonomy? <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it depends on how you're spelling it. Oh, okay. um, I'm, I'm spelling it with a Y. Um, and what I mean by that is sharing a divine name that often deification in a Jewish way is expressed by the idea that God gives his name to people. And this is more than just a cute metaphor for, you know, now your name something else. It's a way for God to share his power because his name represents his authority and his status and some would say his very being. So in the case of Jesus, and I argue in the so-called hymn in Philippians 2 where Jesus receives the name above all names, clearly not just some kind of cute perfunctory ceremony that's a mere formalistic no when he gets the name of god then he becomes god and 
his status is actually clearly raised. And this is a clear example of deification or deification tradition in a particular Jew with a particular Jewish local color being applied to Jesus. So theonomy means that application of the divine name to a human being, which is a mode of deification. Yes, and I'm reminded of, um, we, we talk a lot about, uh, internally we talk a lot about Margaret Barker and temple theology, and uh, one of the points that she likes to make is that the high priest is called Yahweh, is, is called the divine name, and actually mm-hmm. takes on the, um, either, you know, exists as Yahweh on earth, or kind of takes on, or, you know, in, um, invokes Yahweh into themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, as part of that, and so uh, I yeah, think that language is pointing idea. directly to, to that tradition. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and again, it's just it's a Jewish way of expressing this transfer of power and status, and in some cases, being. And so, yes, they don't use the language of deification. Yes, that's a later linguistic development, but it's definitely there. It, they're using their own local expressions for it, but mm-hmm. they, yeah, they have their own way of putting it. But that, is, that sense of the investment of supreme power in an individual, that's participating in God's divine energies. That's participating in a clearly superhuman power and status. That is deification. Mm-hmm. Um getting into the more gnostic part, I mean, in my opinion, the whole show has been pretty gnostic <laughs> but more specifically, uh, who is Simon of Samaria, and, and why do you call him a self-deifying hero? Well, Simon of Samaria is, I would call him, um, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, more or less a highly mythologized figure, just as Jesus is a highly mythologized figure. That is, we may be able to reconstruct a certain core about this person as a historical human being. Um, But that's not the point. The point is that we have a figure who seems to, in my opinion, be Christian uh, and live or do his ministry in the area of Samaria, which is just south of Galilee, and who, according to tradition, by means of his speculative insight, realized that the divine fire was something not boxed up in some fourth dimension and separated from the world, but that the divine fire was spread all throughout the universe and exists in seed form in the human heart. Mm. Coming to a, a superhuman consciousness that is awakening our superhuman consciousness, essentially God wakes up within us and begins the process of evolving into the absolute deity that he truly is. And so the, there's a Trinitarian idea that there's a God who is uh, in seed form, a God who is developing, and a God who is in a state of fullness or perfection. And it's Simon 
who believe who it seems to be the first person to realize that he is in and part of this larger process of awakening divinity to its true self and in that process realizes his own divinity not because it was an arrogant claim or that he was a megalomaniac or that he was an evil heretic but because he realized that this process of God coming to fullness and consciousness involved himself and his own transformation of consciousness. Now, according to later tradition, uh, Simon was vilified as the first heretic and the creator of the Gnostic movements. This, of course, is a tragic and disgusting misrepresentation of who this figure actually was. And one of the points in the new book dealing with self-deification is to show that actually Simon and Jesus, as depicted in the Gospel of John at least, are radically parallel figures. And it's a case where, again, I wouldn't say that there's winners and losers, but there is a Simonian, there are Simonian Christians and there are jo Johannine Christians, and they are in a kind of competition. And in the end, they're borrowing ideas from each other. And both communities, neither community wins, both die out. But it just so happens that we have preserved the Gospel of John in the New Testament. And the only Simonian document that we have exists in the Refutation of All Heresies, which I talked with you when I was here last time. Mm -hmm. It is the only genuine Simonian document written in Simon's name. I don't personally think it was written by any historical Simon. But like the Gospel of John, it was written by a community who venerated the founder as a, de as a deified figure. And it tells Simon's philosophy or theology and it is one of the most beautiful pieces of literature of Gnostic literature anyway that we possess it's called the great declaration or the Megali apophasis it's in book six of the refutation of all heresies hmm. yeah I think a lot of our um, a lot of our viewers and listeners will be familiar with uh, with that figure specifically yeah he's a He's kind of a favorite around here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Father, do you want to take the next question? Yeah. Another, another favorite who comes up on the show a lot. Sure, yeah. And also, well, okay, yeah, let's do this next question, and then I'll come back. Um, so we talk a, a lot about Yaldabaoth on this, uh, if, if that's how one would pronounce it, on, on this show as, uh, as the demiurge um, of, of the Sethian uh, mythos. Um, what, uh, what does he have to do with self-divinization? Well, that's a great question. And I, again, in the, in the new book, he gets his own chapter. Uh, I pronounce it Yaldabaoth. Uh, it's, uh, it's a fascinating figure. Uh, the point that I try to make about this figure is it, it's very clear that in Gnostic tradition, he, his chief sin, his chief blasphemy is to say exactly what Yahweh says in the Hebrew Bible, that I am God and there's nobody beside me. <laughs> mm -hmm. In other words, the chief sin of this figure is to create a universe where it's exclusively monotheistic, but the whole premise 
is a wicked lie and based on an arrogant claim of a really ignorant or ignoramus deity who is more or less a kind of adolescent anyway, but is depicted as an abortion or a miscarriage of divine wisdom. Now, what I think is the important point for me anyway about this figure is that he makes the same claim that God makes or Yahweh makes in the Hebrew Bible. So it's clear that the Gnostics are parroting uh, Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible. And but there, it, it's interesting that when people read Yahweh saying, for instance, in Isaiah, I am the only God, there is no God beside me and worship me alone. They try to defend him and say that, yes, well, you know, he's right. Uh, he is the only God and we ought to worship him and, and give him honor. And the Gnostics basically turn this on, on its head and says, don't you see that this is the most arrogant claim that anyone could make? <laughs> and it is inherently false because he doesn't have all the power. And there is something in us which tells us that they're the tyrant who runs this universe, the demonic infrastructure and bureaucracy, and leads us into all, you know, to fulfill our commercialized lusts and ignore the important things in life, the great questions about getting free and true freedom, not just, you know, what kind of toothpaste I can <laughs> freely choose at the supermarket, but I mean true freedom. The God who is trying to prevent that is telling a lie that we know to be a lie because we have the divine spark and the divine power within us. And so we know that anyone who claims to have all the power and to be the only God and to not allow any participation, not allow any deification, that being must be the primal liar, the father of lies. Because we experience it in our own selves. We experience divinity within us. And it's by virtue of that experience that we know that any force in this universe who tries to take that power away from us, who tries to say that we're just dust, that we're just nothing, that we're just particles, materialistic, you know, materialistic philosophy, which says that we have no soul, that we are only electrical impulses in our brains, and there's only the natural world, and cog, we are cogs in this vast wheel, and we will die when the sun dies in two billion years, and in five billion years there will never be a memory that the human race existed. That kind of <laughs> basic philosophy is a lie from hell. And it's the Yadabeo character is the one who shows that because we know he's lying, but it's he so it is parroting Yahweh, but it's it's not the true Yahweh. It's not the true God. The Gnostics aren't saying that God is a lie. They're saying that there is a true God who shares his divinity, who is beyond name and beyond knowing. But there are these other divinities, these other powers in, our, in this world who come in and say, no, we have all the power or we have all the money. I guess in American culture, and you people 
are nothing. You 99% have nothing. You're not worth anything. That's the lie that I think these Gnostics are trying to expose, and they expose it through the character of Yaldabaoth. And Yaldabaoth, uh, is there any hope for him? <laughs> does, he, <laughs> do, does he come out, does he say, oh, you know what, maybe I was wrong? You know, that's interesting because in certain texts at, uh, of Nagamadi, we have a secondary character, character called Sabaoth, mm -hmm. who is depicted as Yaldabaoth's son. And, yeah, and Sabaoth does repent. Um, he looks at his father's error and he essentially says, Dad, you know, I'm out of here. You know, I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to lift myself up to a higher level of heaven that's higher than you, and I'm going to rule as uh, as a deity mm -hmm. and let you have your own little world below, uh, which you're eventually going to be imprisoned and destroyed. But there is a sense, I think, in Gnostic texts that you, an archon can repent, uh, but unfortunately it doesn't seem that Yaldabaoth makes that decision. <laughs> I have a uh, I have a wild theory that I'm working on right now that's based on nothing at all. That um, that Yaldabaoth is actually part of a, a trinity um, in that between Yaldabaoth, Sakhlas, and Samael. That okay. uh, he's a, mm -hmm. a kind of a, a, a trinitarian um, uh, concept that exists within the uh, within the Sethian corpus. But like I said, there's there's no, uh, no no textual or literary uh, reference to that. I just like it. Uh. Well, you got you got two out of three there with Savio being a son. So right. Sorry, I, I zoned out for a bit. What were we saying about Trump again? Oh this is no. Usually, oh, baboon. <laughs> we'll lose uh. our nonprofit status. Cut it out. Yeah. All right. That's right. That's right. No politics. Okay. Right. Um. Uh. Uh. I, I guess moving on. Although that. That's fascinating. Again, oh, there's, actually, there's before show. we go on oh, yeah. to the next yeah. question, sorry, now I screwed up yep. the graphics. Sorry, Dan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, I also wanted to mention, um, in addition to the people we've already talked about, people or figures or deities that we've already talked about from your book, you uh, you talk about Lucifer also. Can you do a quick uh, quick little summary of of how, where Lucifer fits into all of this? Yeah, Lucifer, or um, as he's called in the Hebrew Bible, Helal ben Shachar, that is the shining one, son of the dawn, goddess. He is uh, depicted as a kind of primal self-deifying figure. Uh, in Isaiah 14, he has this great scheme where he's going to rise upon the clouds and assault the divine council and sit on the throne of God. And even before he's done thinking, he is thrown down into the <laughs> and I, I think you know this is the primal fear of Hebrew religion that you could have a tyrant and the true tyrant is the one who claims absolute power and I think I think in, if you're an ancient Israelite, this terrifies you, as it should terrify us today, that self-deification is, in many cases, and we should not deny it, it is the ultimate power grab. Mm. And it is the attempt to claim not just any power, but supreme power. And anyone who does that 
is from the Jewish perspective or the Israelite perspective is is destined to fall. Now I say that there are two myths of self-deification. There's the self-deifying rebel, and that would be this Hillel or Lucifer figure or Yaldabaoth. Mm -hmm. But there's also the self-deifying hero, in which they often come as a hidden deity or a deity in disguise, like Jesus and Simon, and they don't reveal their true identity, or they reveal it in a very gingerly way, through miracles and through certain secret declarations, and they are actually persecuted on earth, and there's not a hint of arrogance about them. <laughs> and in the end, although they might be killed and vilified, they do rise to the stars. And so there's two myths at work here, and we need to be very careful that both are biblical. <laughs> that it's not just, we don't just have the self-deifying rebel, we also have the self-deifying hero. Because in principle, if you know what deity is, and you know what it means to share power, then you don't, then deifying yourself in principle ought to involve not a sliver of arrogance. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's <laughs> absolutely true. <laughs> you, you have to be a special kind of crazy, which I think probably relate, some of us can relate. Uh, to to want to say, <laughs> yeah. you know what? <laughs> Maybe I could be God. Hey, why not? <laughs> why not me? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, anyways, let's uh, let's move on. <laughs> um, the uh, we we also talk a lot on the show about the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, any ideas about deification uh, hidden among the sayings of the Gospel of Thomas? Yes, and I don't think they're quite hidden. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I think this this gospel is probably more than any other is the gospel of, of human deification. And it's, uh, again, deification for the small man. You know, it's not just Jesus, as in the gospel of John, strutting about and saying, I and the Father are one, and before Abraham was, I am, and I'm the big stuff and you guys follow me, and if you don't, you're damned. It's exactly the reverse mm. in the Gospel of Thomas. It's it's the incredibly in, inclusive Jesus, the Jesus who is totally including people within his own deity. And this is really the key, that he, one becomes, if you're going to have a Christian theory of deification, Jesus isn't the guy who realizes his own divinity, and he's the only God form a new form of monotheism that we just call trinitarianism mm -hmm. and nobody else can then be divine that i think is a lie and i think it's totally foreign to early christianity and certainly foreign to the gospel of thomas in the gospel of thomas jesus welcomes people into his own divinity and is simply a model for us to realize our own divinity in the most humane and um mystical way possible and through careful humble meditative reflection on the profound sayings of jesus himself and so the very things that are said of jesus that he is the light above them all and saying seven seventy seven is similar to what we find in about said about regular christians and that we have the light within 
in the Gospel of Thomas saying 24, and that we come from the light, and that we're the children of the light. So, and just as Jesus is the Son of God, we are the children of God. That's all over the New Testament as well. He has a kind of priority, but it's only a, it's only relative priority. He's not a fundamentally different being than we are. We are, if we're doing things right, we're evolving to be what he is. He is the model. He is the way, not in the sense of the exclusive way, he's the way in the sense that he shows us who we really are. Mm -hmm. And unless we become Christ, we have missed the point. In our uh, in the Joannite liturgy, we refer to Jesus as the exemplar of our of our liberation, um, and I always like that as a symbol that you know it's he he showed us the way, and but we get to go too. Mm-hmm. Precisely. Yeah. Uh, let's skip ahead by a thousand years or so, <laughs> uh, but we can uh, we can say you were just talking about divine light, actually, uh, but a lot of our listeners are interested in St. Gregory of Palamas and uh, the hesychasm. Can you talk a bit about what you call deification by grace and, and about uh, some of uh, St. Gregory's ideas? Well, that is quite a leap. Um, what, I'll <laughs> say, what I'll say first is that there's a certain theological problem that I have with deification by grace. You have a lot of people today who believe in deification and are trying to make it kosher for Western Christians. And one of the ways to do this is to emphasize the idea of grace, which I think is fine in and of itself, but we can, we can get trapped into this, uh, especially if we f- try to fit it into exclusively Protestant formulations. This is well known. Luther preached salvation only by grace, by grace alone. And if we, the idea seems to be that if we can make deification by grace and by grace alone, then we can make it kosher and acceptable for all Christians and not look like evil heretics, (laughs) megalomaniacal blasphemers. This is all well and good, but it, one has to be very careful of distorting the teaching and I think deification by grace uh, is fine as far as it goes, but there's a danger of viewing deification as kind of like a gift, like you would receive a bicycle. <laughs> um, deification isn't. God gave really... me a bicycle and. <laughs> <laughs> and godhood. Yeah. <laughs> That's, Merry you Christmas. Know, it's just not the point. Deification is an experience. And it involves your full body and your full spirit. And it's not something that God can hand you like a cookie. It's something that you're fully involved in and you're fully working toward. So if we just put this emphasis on grace, we essentially nod to Luther, which is fine if you like Luther. But the point is that in many cases, if salvation in the deepest sense, is deification. It involves our whole body and everything that we do and think. And therefore, it involves work and real work and real prayer. And certainly this is true in the hesychastic tradition. You don't, you don't get deified by eating a donut, you know, uh, on the beach and by going to play video games and waking up at noon, you get deified because you're up at 4.30 with your head in, you know, right, or your chin right against your belly button and praying 
fervently the prayer of Jesus or the Jesus prayer and doing this for hours and hours and hours until the light begins to shine in you, that's not eating a cookie. That's not God handing you deification. You're working toward that. And it's because of who you are and the fact that you are in your spirit compatible with the divine energies already that deification in the Eastern tradition makes sense. So, sure, we can talk about deification by grace, but let's just be clear that we need to know a whole lot more about what's really involved here and not fool ourselves into thinking that this is something that we can just, like an implant or a pill we can eat, you know, we'll wake up into a new consciousness as superhuman beings. No, this is something that our whole body and our whole soul and our whole spirit are involved in, and it is work, and it is hard work. And this is the spirit, it is a spiritual practice, and this is what Gregory supported. It's the good news and the bad news of uh, Gnostic salvation as well, right? Like, it's available to anybody, but you gotta, you gotta work on it, you gotta do the work. Yeah, because it's knowledge is not information. Mm -hmm. It's experiential yeah. knowledge. And I don't care how much of Wikipedia you read, you're never <laughs> going to deify yourself. I always say, you know, I just got to read one more book and then, I've, you know, then I'm done, right? Like, I just... <laughs> well, you go there. <laughs> uh, how are we doing for time, Father? Uh, six minutes. Oh, six minutes. Um, ish. Ish. Okay. Uh, well, I would just like to go back to your previous Wikipedia and book comments. Of course, if you buy Dr. Litva's books and read them all, you will self-divinize. Mm -hmm. So uh, there, we'll have links. Yeah. We, we well, will have you better put your the, whole uh, body and soul into it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That burning um, any, any sensation means that it's working. Right. <laughs> yeah. Before we end with the, the uh, with the leading question I put at the end of the of the uh, the sheet, was there something anything else you want to ask about Father uh, that we've touched on? Uh, lots, but uh, let's lots, just yeah. uh, let's wrap it up and and uh, we'll continue this later, I guess. Yeah, uh, uh, Dr. Lippa, I'm wondering. So we've talked a lot about the past. Uh, so uh, the, we went way back to the ancient world. We did skip ahead a thousand years, but uh, we're still far into the past. These ideas about self-deification, divinization, are they still around and believed and practiced? Um, uh, can you find them outside of religion? Are, are they still in the modern world and in the West anywhere? Or are they just uh, something interesting for scholars to read about? Well, as far as I know, Christianity is still around, and it is and remains the cult of immortality, which promises immortality to every Tom, Dick, and Harry. And I think that is significant. I think the impulse toward the immortalization or the eternalization of ourself is one of the strongest impulses that is programmed into us biologically, and that we have various means of eternalizing ourselves, and some people have now with tech, by technological means, taking this into their own hands. Transhumanists are thinking seriously about uploading themselves, uploading their consciousness onto a supercomputer or using biogenic implants and nanoprobes uh, to not only increase their 
own consciousness uh, potentially to an infinite level, but essentially to eternalize themselves on a different platform, to escape this wet platform we call the flesh and enter into uh, essentially a digital or a cyber platform. There's other ways that one can imagine this happening. Um, mutation, the, the process of evolution pushing the human body into something much superior than it is right now. Again, other kinds of implants and uh, tools, and sometimes people uh, think that they can do this alone, and sometimes they think that they can do this together. But this impulse toward, it's not just toward survival, it's toward immortalization. And I think everybody does this on some level, that we really think that if not our own individuality, uh, then surely the race, the race ought to be immortalized or our community ought to be immortalized, whether it be our church or our nation, that we are valuable enough to be immortal. And I think this is what human rights is all about, that we are sacred. And even if our bodies die, we our spirits are immortal and we, in a sense, deserve to be immortal. And we think of ourselves or our communities as ultimate, even if they aren't. And we're still striving for this ideal, even if we never get there. And so I think it's definitely here. And I think deification is here to stay and I think one now needs to talk about how to engage in the process responsibly particularly when you do have people who are truly arrogant and may might have billions of dollars in order to immortalize themselves while the rest of us just have kids and uh, or just live horrible lives and die in agony uh, without good medical treatment. Um, you, we have a situation where we are now responsible for each other, responsible for keeping this planet in good enough order so that at least potentially the race could survive another thousand or another million years. And people need to be thinking about what myths we need to be using in order to responsibly think about eternalizing the human human consciousness uh, and the human race and so we need to think about is Superman gonna be our myth or Iron Man the individual maverick who attains a kind of superhuman power and possibly immortalizes himself are we gonna think on the superhuman model or are we gonna think of other models ways that we can together forge ahead into the future and keep ourselves alive, at least live as if consciousness was eternal and as if we were, were worth remembering for the next billion years, even when the sun dies out. These are questions that we need to think about. These are stories that we need to tell. And we're responsible for the kind of stories that we tell about deification. Because if the tyrant does get control, if there is truly a self-deifying megalomaniac out there, a braggart, who could lead us to destruction, then we also need to bring him down. And so 
that is what I mean about keeping these myths, being responsible with how we think about eternalizing ourselves, which I think because humanity is at bottom good, deification is good and something worth striving for. Well, on that motivating note, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us once again. Uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. The book is Desiring Divinity, Self-Deification in Early Jewish and Christian Mythmaking. The author, Dr. M. David Litva of, of Virginia Tech. Thank you once again for joining us. Uh, it, it's always uh, always edifying to, uh, to have you on the show. Thank you, Tony. Thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dr. Litva. That was amazing. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Talk Gnosis with Dr. David Litva. Again, if you haven't already, please go and visit our Patreon page, patreon.com slash gnostic, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash gnostic. Your support is vital to the continuation and the growth of the Gnostic Wisdom Network. So we really hope to uh, see you become a patron over there. Uh, it would mean a lot to us, and we would get to do such amazing things with your support. So uh, thank you for going to do that. And for everybody who's listening along at home, we'll see you next time. 